Hi, this is Craig Daniloff from The Privacy Co., and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 247 for November 22nd, 2021, right before Thanksgiving here in the United States. So for those of you celebrating, uh, happy Thanksgiving. And if you're looking to be extra generous this Thanksgiving, you can do a couple things. First of all, help your friends and family become more private and secure. We're going to talk again today. We talked a little bit last week when we talked about the best and worst gift guide. We're going to talk about some more of that today. And and keep in mind as we're talking about privacy issues and things you can do to improve your privacy and security, not just for yourself. Think about your loved ones, too, especially if you spend time with them over Thanksgiving or the other holidays coming up here soon. That's a great time to help people, you know, kind of improve their own situation, especially if you've already got yourself covered, then help others. And of course, something else you can do is you can donate money to some of the great charities that are doing good work for security and privacy for all of us. And if you just go to my blog, firewallsdontstopdragons.com, and search on thanks or Thanksgiving, you'll find an article where I talk about several of my top choices and some other ones you might look at uh, to give some money to some people who are fighting the good fight every day. So as you may have surmised by by the input tagline, we've got an interview today with Craig Danieloff from Priv. And that, you may recall, is the app that I said was really cool that I checked out last week and I added as a kind of a special note for the Best and Worst Gift Guide. And since then, I've played with it a little bit more and I still need to spend some more time with it, but it really is cool. And uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking specifically about that app today in the interview because, you know, I don't like to do infomercials, but it's directly tied to a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And that's why I invited uh, Craig to come on the show is because it is hard. There's there's just a lot of things and a lot of them are easy, a lot of them are quick and simple, you know, in and of themselves. But when you kind of add them all up, it just looks really daunting and it just takes time. And it, it's not that you can't do it. And I recommend that you don't get overwhelmed, that you, if you want to do it on your own, you certainly can. And you just need to kind of, you know, get the checklist and walk through it and check them off as you, you know, as you go. But there are some tools, thankfully, today, and Priv is one of them, that will kind of help you accelerate that process and, you know, and kind of with one click, take care of a lot of these things automatically. And so anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about that today with Craig. Now, because these are good for helping other people, uh, these are, uh, you know, this podcast and the, the, the blog about best and worst gifts, those are great things to share. And I'm always looking for new listeners and trying to reach new people. So this, these would be great ones to share with others on your social media or maybe just to kind of chat about over, over the holidays as you're you know hanging out with friends and family. I would very much appreciate that. All right, but let's get to the interview. Craig's got some great things to tell us. So let's hear him directly from Craig. Craig Danieloff is a technology entrepreneur who has founded a series of tech companies, including desktop publishing, e-commerce, ad tech, identity, and now consumer privacy. Craig's a graduate of the University of Colorado Leeds School of Business and the author of over 20 computer books. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Craig. Sure. Great. Happy to be here. So with the holidays coming up and many of us will be buying and receiving gifts, uh, you know, and these may be tech devices or online services, all of which have security and privacy implications that many people just won't be aware of. We're likely also to be visiting family and friends who may already be using similar devices and services. So this seems like an excellent time to talk about, you know, how modern Internet Connect devices and services that require access to our personal information can be privacy and security risks. And, you know, how we can eliminate or at least maybe mitigate some of those risks. And not just for ourselves, but, you know, again, because it's the holidays, we're going to be seeing friends and family will be at their houses or whatever, you know, maybe to take care of those people as well while we're there. So... 
Uh, but before we start, um, tell us a little bit more about you and yourself and how, you know, tell us a little bit more about your company and, you know, what drove you to starting a privacy business? Yeah. Uh, well, I've been an entrepreneur. I, I somewhat coincidentally started starting companies right around the time that the internet first emerged. And uh, I actually had a company to publish data on CD-ROM uh, in the mid-90s. And one of, our, one of our customers was Office Max, uh, who is, I think, gone now or uh, absorbed somewhere. And, and they called us one day and said, can you, we were publishing their catalog to CD-ROM, and they asked if we could put it on this new internet thing. So we figured out how to do a save as HTML and put, a, put commerce on the internet, 94, pretty, pretty early. And that transformed the company. It became an e-commerce platform company in the, in the following years. So I was very involved in wave one and whatever you want to call it of e-commerce. A few years later, I started a company that helped manage the ads on the side of Google. So kind of early ad tech mm. and did, did a number of years there. So I saw, you know, the, the collection of data begin and, and along with a lot of these internet technologies, a little bit later, um, the impact of the data we were collecting was something I was thinking a lot about. Mm -hmm. And I started a company in the little window where there was something we all called quantified self when it was just, you know, fun and interesting to track your own data <laughs> metrics. Yeah. But even at that company, I was trying to protect it, uh, protect the data, meaning use it for your advantage as opposed to letting all those companies collecting it, use it for their advantage. That company didn't really get too far, but I still thought about that. And, uh, about three, four years ago, I started thinking about how hard it was for an individual to protect themselves and make all the little changes and add all the tools and take all the steps it takes to stop sharing or or leaking mm -hmm. so much data. Yeah. And I thought, this is a asymmetric problem. You know, you gotta, <laughs> yes. people leak data endlessly. They don't know it and they don't have the expertise to stop it. How could we help them? And uh, so I formed this company called the Privacy Co. And I've got some 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 partners, a corporate uh, sponsor, a, you know, I co-founded the company with. And we've been working on the problem for a couple of years. We have this app called Priv, where we try to make it easy for an individual to protect themselves. Yeah, and we'll definitely be talking about that later when we talk, we talk about some solutions. But in your view, let me get a couple of quick takes from you on this before we dive into those details. In your view, how do we get where we are today? Like what really gave rise to surveillance capitalism and you know how did this whole data mining industry manage to escape meaningful regulation at least so far like, like in the US yeah it's interesting and i do think about that having you know been there you know involved as i said when we were first putting stores on the internet and taking credit cards and all of a sudden we figured out hey we could you know the very first or the very early data analytics and online tracking and and while we couldn't know who came before and we couldn't know what they looked at, and it was just, you know, innocent and innocuous. You know, the, the efforts at the early time was just to make the functionality better, mm -hmm. serve the clients better, help the customers. And so a lot of this evolved out of sort of innocent tools that got out of hand. Yeah. You know, first of all, the technology, right, scaled massively. And ultimately, things that were created in data that's collected with benign intentions, there became bad ways to use it. And people started exploiting that. Mm -hmm. And over time, you have competitive pressures. Obviously, the amount of money involved accrued. The whole advertising and ad tech got involved. And I even think that's benign and you know innocent originally. Like people 
need to market and advertise, yeah. but they're incentivized dramatically to leverage every technical capability. And the capabilities were so dramatic that they wound up making sort of powerful and harmful tools, right? And then you also, I think, have a morals problem, I would say, in the ad tech industry. <laughs> I mean, there's problems with what they say about, you know, how often ads are displayed and who actually saw mm. them. And so it just spiraled, basically, right? It's yeah. just death by a thousand cuts times a million. And ultimately, we got in a situation where people's data is being collected, it's being aggregated, it's being analyzed and augmented through right analysis or, or some kind of uh, inference that's put on these things. And that data, in certain, the aggregation of that data has a lot of value. And that data can be used by bad people to harm individuals in a in a lot of ways. So it, it was a started off innocently enough, and I think over 20 years it got very intense and got very dangerous. And over the last few years, fortunately, people have realized how serious it is. People have started protecting themselves more. There's more pressure put on companies to collect less data, offer more options to opt out of things, and you know, and even slowly, as as you well know, government regulations getting involved where it where it needs to be, and so you know, I think twenty five years into the ditch, and we're a couple <laughs> years on our way getting out. Oh, I hope you're right. Um, <laughs> I, I've been giving a class uh, for many years now, and there's a bullet toward the end where I've looked toward the future, and I that bullet has said, you know, things are going to get better before they get worse, and that bullet's been there for like six straight years. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, but you might be. I hope you're right. I hope we're actually, you know, maybe turning a corner. Real quick, I mean, because you've been there, uh, maybe help us understand why is collecting and selling our personal data so lucrative? Like, and what ex what exactly is our data being monetized to do? Like, what and what types of data are maybe most valuable to these companies, these data brokers? Well, you know, the challenge in all of this is there's there's many answers to really each of these questions, right? So the 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 value is being derived in many many places in many different ways. Generally, from from an individual point of view. Uh, they are most valuable as a target for advertising. I mean, you know, some people individually may be more valuable for personal targeting of their bank account or their identity or something like that. But, but for most people, their individual data isn't worth very much. But when they're in a bucket with 10,000 or 100,000 others, hmm. it does have value. Sure. So there's this sort of, it's not really asymmetric, but there's this non, you know, linearity to where the value is and where the risk is. So we get in this situation where it's hard to explain to someone why, yeah. you know, the company knowing that they came to that website or someone knowing their location is individually harmful. And yet when you take another approach to it and say, well, gee, would you like someone to know, maybe you don't mind they know you went to that one place, but do you want them to know every place you went? And right. when you start thinking about what they can infer from all right. those places you went, then you then you get the creepy factor starts building up and people start you know backing away. Yeah. So it's lucrative because there's the advertising side of it and then there's the sort of crime you know more more intense effort kind of stuff. Mm, sure. So uh, allow me to play devil's advocate here for a second and uh, you know and ask maybe this question. Is is privacy a lost cause at this point? I mean, given the sheer volume of my personal data that has already been harvested and shared with so many third parties, many of which I'll never know, do I really have any hope of clawing it all back and taking meaningful control over it again? Let's assume for, for a second that you're going to say, yes, you can. <laughs> the next question then obviously is, how much time and effort is it going to take for me to do that? Yeah, well, first, I think that's kind of the most important question. There, there's two reasons I think people don't 
take any action and protect themselves in this, as you know. One is it's too late, which you're suggesting it's already out there. And two is I've got nothing to hide. And there's different responses to both of those. Mm-hmm. But if, if you have a leak, you want to stop it, right? That's my view. And for 90% of the data that you're responsible for sharing, that is where you're getting nothing for sharing it, but giving up a lot by allowing it to be shared, stolen, leaked, whatever word you want to use. You can cut that data off, and I think it's worth the relatively minor effort to do so. The other thing, to the point about data is already out there, a lot of data about you is already out there. The data that's out there about you, not all of it, but some of it, decays in value Mm, fairly dramatically. I mean, the advertising market, data that's six months old, profiling data, targeting data that they don't pay a lot of attention to. So if you stop now, if you start using a search engine that's not tracking you or add tracking blockers to your website or change some location sharing settings on your phone, you're going to meaningfully decrease by double digit percentages how much data you're sharing. And therefore, what's known about you and the footprint and the way you're getting the risks you're facing, and we'll talk, I think, in a few minutes about the different kinds of risks, you know, can decrease. So you can make it appreciably better with some simple actions. Now, the question, mm. the second part of your question is, how hard is that? <laughs> There's a lot to do, um, but you get the biggest bang for your first steps. You can really make a lot of difference by doing, you know, 10, 15 things. Mm-hmm. You can do them all at once. You can do them over time. And like anything else, it becomes addictive because you understand <laughs> more. You're more sensitive to the things that you're now letting go. And you can just iterate over time. Uh, one of the things we put in in Priv from the beginning, which was, I've sometimes almost jokingly regretted it because it's so much effort is a score. And, and we put the score in because no one knows where they are or they don't know the impact of what they do. Mm. And we wanted people to have context to say, okay, if I, you know, switch my default search engine from Google to DuckDuckGo, or if I add a tracking blocker, or if I, uh, you know, change these settings or add this other utility, you know, two factor authentication or something, what does that do? And we wanted you to see a dial move further or see a number move up. Mm. So, you know, oh, I that had an impact on me. Yeah. No, I, I think I've made that point too. And I, I think it's important to realize that your data does have a half-life, that it, that, it, that it does, its value does decay over time so that it, there is value into in stopping, which is, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I think that's a really good point. And yeah, we it's will also, de- go ahead. Also, sorry, one of the things that, you know, we recommend and we don't, probably make a big enough point about it in the app is, you know, sort of obscured through obfuscation, you know, it, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of polluting the data mm-hmm. using more names and email addresses and right. private email addresses and, and burner cell phone or burner, uh, privacy.com credit cards. You can pollute the data either by diffusing your footprint or by putting bad data in there. And that's a little more advanced and not everyone might, might want to do it, but a little bit of effort in that way muddies that old data up so it's less useful. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things that I've drawn a lot of attention to over the years and, and is that the marketers, it used to be back in the day when you sign up for an account, you could check, you could pick your username. Now, if it was a popular service, it might have to be, you know, Kerry Parker, really cool guy, 1925, right? <laughs> or whatever, you'd have to call yeah. some goofy name because it was taken. And then somewhere, some bright marketing guy said, well, let's make it an email address. It's guaranteed to be unique. Oh, and <laughs> we can now send this guy, you know, a bunch of email and... Now, because we're all settling on 
emails and actually now today it's almost more your your mobile phone number these things don't change i mean for most people their email address and their phone number in particular is theirs for life it's almost right. like your government id yeah it's why the you know the google plus you know you add a plus sign in a word right. after the first part of your email is a great trick and tip if everyone anyone who doesn't know about it um you know so my email is craig at the privacy.co i can sign onto a service as craig plus analytics company at the privacy.co google ignores that plus in the word which means a they don't match when someone tries to match them up and b if i ever get spam or someone else comes in on that email i know where they came from mm -hmm. for people who don't want to create more sophisticated levels of burner accounts it's a good you know way right. to do it not everything works it does right fail some percentage of the time i mm -hmm. will have to disclaim that but most of the time you can use it and it helps yeah so, and you touched on this for a second, and this is the one other aspect I want to talk to you before we get into some specifics. And that is that a lot of people still feel that, the, you know, privacy concerns are just totally overblown. I get this whenever I talk about it or to people, someone inv invariably asks, you know, why is privacy so important? And, you know, because they feel that their own data isn't valuable or interesting. They feel that they're just, you know, <laughs> some of it's from the government perspective and some of it's from the corporate perspective. But either way, they don't put much effort into protecting it because they just don't feel like it has much value. But the point I'd like, I'd like to make, and I'd like to get your take on this, is it's not just about privacy. First of all, your data is other people's data. It's you, your contacts and things you're exposing to other people. But second, there are security risks involved with sharing that information. Do you do you agree? Yeah, and and it is a core problem in convincing people, which is unfortunately a part of this game, that they need to spend the time and take the action to protect themselves. The way we think about it is that there's at least four that we talk about categories of harm. And we find that when you talk about these and make them sort of explicit, then people are much more likely to realize that, yeah, I, I want to avoid that kind of harm. Or maybe not all of them, but, but some mm -hmm. one or more of them they have a feeling about. So the way we think about it, the first one is kind of the personal data leak world of you know, your photos, your things you did, things you said are available to either everyone or someone. And that's kind of an embarrassment bucket, right? Mm. That it might be the, you know, getting a job and someone finds out you posted something or it might be any anything that would be embarrassing or have a reputational damage mm -hmm. that could aggregate over time. So that's one reason to just, and we have lots of things in throughout Prio to help you prevent leaving data now, you don't have to not create it. You don't have to not participate in an online world, but you can do things to make sure it's not accessible to everyone or it doesn't last right. forever because you who right. wants to be embarrassed in one way or another. Yeah. The, the next is kind of the marketing world. We'd call it ad tracking, which some people really hate seeing ads follow them around. Some people don't mind. Some people like what quote unquote personalization. Some people hate it. And that's fine. That's a reasonable personal taste, the problem, as you well know, is that A, lots of ad tech has is more aggressive in what they collect. They're not simply using your data to target an ad to you. And the way I think about it, it's it's manipulation. And obviously, in the last couple of political cycles, we saw cases where mm -hmm. profiles built for advertising were used for, you know, political or any other conceptual message pushing or filter bubble creation right. to steer you somewhere. So yeah. do you want to see you want people to show you things that they think you should see, well, then you probably want to cut down on, on the tracking. <laughs> right. And generally that world is, you know, 100% insidious. Yeah. So, you know, adding a tracking blocker, using a, a private search engine, doing these things that cut that data avoids that world of harm for you. The third is financial, which is the easy one to get everyone's attention. <laughs> right. um, you know, whether it's identity theft 
or or f- some sort of direct fraud or you being scammed in some way, allowing people to have enough data to either access an account, fool a relative, or create a new account in your name, right? That's bad. And people tend to not want that. Right. That's a bunch of stuff you can easily prevent. And and the last category we, we tend to think of as harm and harassment. It kind of centers around location data, but also other identity data. And there's a smaller group of people maybe, but but there's many people who are can be subject to physical harm or you know mental or verbal harassment or other just bad behavior right. because people can know too much about them. Right. Yeah. So you know when you when you break it down any of this, I think privacy is a is a concept. It means a lot of different things to a lot of people. It you know used to mean looking in your window or reading your diary, and that's not what we're talking about. But when you talk about public embarrassment or people changing the world you see or taking your money or tracking you down and confronting you, those things people want to avoid. And all of the tactics that you and your book and, and us improve try to help people do reduce risk of these things. And I think that's, it's not hard to get people to say they don't want to sign up for any of those. <laughs> right. All right. So now let's get to the fun stuff. Let's actually get to some specifics and some ways that we can mitigate and uh, or even eliminate some of these risks. So um, I want to talk about a few different big kind of areas here. So let's start with Let's start with social media. We've talked about that already a little bit already. You know, a concept founded on the very idea of sharing information. What are the main ways that people leak too much information uh, in their social media and what can they do to fix that? Yeah, and this is also a great example of the fact that you can participate, but by simply taking advantage of settings and options and choices that by now all of these companies provide, you can get the good out of them and mitigate dramatically, you know, the bad. Right. Facebook, largely through pressure over the last 10 years, yeah. has added an enormous amount of settings. They I'm, they have a, I think they have a department there in charge of moving them around and renaming <laughs> them every six months so, so they're hard yes. to find. Yes, I'm which sure is they a do. problem. Yeah. Yeah, we've been building some automation, as you know, recently, uh, which makes this game even more fun for us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on Facebook, for example, the most – significant settings, I would say there's one for off Facebook tracking, right? So Facebook has been, and they've through, I don't know if it was litigation or government reasons, they've Mm -hmm. cut off some of this, but you know, they were buying what you bought at the grocery store, you know, your credit card purchase information. They also get data from, as you know, their tracking pixel is on 60, Mm -hmm. 70% of all the websites out there. Um, You can turn that off and say, Facebook, okay, I know you're going to know what I do on Facebook because that's your property, first party data. But I don't want you adding to what you know about me through the rest of my life. You click a toggle, they stop doing that. You can disable Facebook location tracking. You can dis- disable the facial recognition, which they're now going to disable mm-hmm. themselves permanently. Yeah. You know, there's probably 10 or 12, you know, in the list improve uh, for Facebook, maybe more. That is all benefit to you. It will cost you nothing in your Facebook experience. It costs them a lot in terms of raising right. your value to them. And and most of the other platforms have this on Google. The top three, which we also have in our in our automation feature as well as Priv, um, you can turn off the, the the search history and web tracking. You can turn off the location uh, tracking, which in Google, as you also know, you can see what they have now. If you want to be scared, go look at you know this uh, list of every place you've ever been and when and where and what you did there. Oh, you should definitely do that too. Yes, and, and then you can also turn off ad personalization, which probably doesn't change any data they have but changes who gets to use the data 
to influence you if, if you're willing to call uh, advertising and marketing and maybe mm. other uh, people's use of that. So three switches in Google dramatically change you know your profile if if you even if you want to still use google maps and google uh search which i personally wouldn't do but um if you do definitely turn off those three things google gmail has great security so you know we use it a lot of other people still use it you go down the list right this is what priv is full of right we when when i very first started this the first sort of proof of concept exercise i did was to say okay can i write how long of a list if i write down all the settings changes that i would recommend to a friend how long would it be and what you find is, A, there's a lot of settings. B, if you go research from the internet, there's most of the writing about it is very advanced, technical, sophisticated, mm. and sort of off-putting to the mm-hmm. average user. Right, yeah. And like everything else on the internet, there's five opinions and three of them are crazy and one of them's <laughs> wrong. So you have this, you know, there, there really wasn't an aggregation of, okay, here's the checklist. This is what we now call them in the app. Do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And here's why, and here's, you know, things have consequences. This may cause you a little inconvenience. This may make this behave this way. You might, you know, we, we recommend most things. Some things we say consider, which generally means it's a toss-up, but there's mm-hmm. a good reason for a lot of people to not mm-hmm. use it. So the point is you can do a lot. And to your earlier question, right, each of these things, if Google's now not tracking my location and Facebook's not getting my off-Facebook data and LinkedIn, you know, there's things on LinkedIn you can you can turn off. I've just stopped a large percentage of the data that was going to be sitting out there and only used against me from being there. And that's a lot of impact. What, what sort of data do we leak when we just surf the web? And, and there's, I, to me, it seems like there's kind of two aspects to that. There's the passively part where maybe we're just searching or browsing, and then maybe actively, like when we actually sign up for something or buy something on the web. What are we leaking there? And then what can we do to maybe limit or eliminate some of those breadcrumbs we leave? Yeah, sure. So I think that's a good way to think about it. So there's some things that are just happening mechanically because you're searching the web. You know, you're connected to whatever your ISP is. That's going through a system. And as we know now, you know, I forget who put out an analysis just a few weeks ago that our ISPs are collecting and yeah. using that trail of data yep. a lot more than they all swear swore that they were. And then you're volunteering a lot of a lot of information. And generally speaking, there's things you can do about a lot of that. On the sort of core browsing issue, the more fundamental technical level, Apple's new private relay, mm-hmm. I think is great. Uh, yeah. you know, it's functionally a VPN. You know, forgetting, you know, there's an argument about what technically whether it is or not, but it, it's obfuscating, <laughs> yeah. you know, where I'm going to most of the people between me and there. And it's, it's not perfectly transparent or harm free, but it's, um, and this has always been the problem with VPNs. I, I, I like them, but I generally don't recommend them to, beginners or people who don't want hassle and convenience in their life because right. it's hard to go a day without needing to turn it off and then remember to turn it back on. <laughs> yep. And and Apple's, uh, my experience, and they're still calling it beta, obviously, but private relay is, you know, in the high 90s percentages. You, I think anyone who uses it still needs to be aware it's on because you might have to toggle it. And Apple hopefully will do more mm-hmm. to, you know, make that easy and to crowdsource figuring out where it breaks and then just turn it off automatically. Right. But that that's a big thing. I mean, so what we're talking about is letting people know a list of all the sites you've been to or letting a, a harmful Wi-Fi access point, you know, grab everything mm-hmm. you do in one mm-hmm. specific place. We talked before about, you know, email, either using the plus trick if you've got Google or, or using burner emails from MySudo or from one of the other services that, mm-hmm. that uses emails. Most of the things here are advanced, meaning, well, actually, let me back up a second. The 
the first thing I think that you and I would probably agree on is you want to have a tracking blockers installed in your website because most web pages are kind of 25% web page and 75% <laughs> tracking mechanism. Right. Yep. So whether it's, you know, now it's built in more and more even to Safari, but something like Brave that we like a lot uh, and, and Firefox has a lot of blocking in there. You know, there's maybe some other issues there. So a browser that is protecting you and then an add-on, one of the many, whether it's DuckDuckGo or there's, there's dozens of them we have listed in, in Priv and I'm sure people are mm-hmm. aware of. Yep. But some sort of tracking blocker, it, it's really almost illogical to not use <laughs> right. because, again, it's costing you nothing. Maybe a little inconvenience. I, I shouldn't say nothing because sometimes they can stop a page from working. Many of them are very easy to toggle you know, off if yeah. you need to, if a page right. won't load or behave. And and then you know, back to the data that you share, email addresses, we talked about ways to deal with. I'm a big fan of privacy.com and um, using mm. kind of one-time one or one-site credit cards for online purchases yeah, is, is a good trick. And then yep. um, maybe back a second to the generic, private search. Uh, I use Google for maybe 2% of all my searches and have used DuckDuckGo primarily. And now yep. Brave has a built-in private search that's very nice. That's a great example where you see, it seems innocuous, but you see the result. You know, you do one search for a medical condition that a friend has or a right. situation that you saw on TV and the, you know, the ads start following you around mm-hmm. um, and you think about what's happening you, you didn't know about. That's an easy change. The quality of the search is great. So you, you, you combine those five or six things we just said, turn on private relay, use a good browser, maybe use different browsers for different situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mm-hmm. think most people would do that, but you know, I, I, I probably use, I use a different browser in financial related things than the one I use every day because the one I use every day, even despite my best efforts, probably is right, tracked and, and they're aggregating enough fingerprint data to know something about that person. And I'd rather that not, uh, you know, influence certain situations. Right. Actually, just to that point real quick, uh, as long as we're giving tips, one of the great things that Firefox added recently, uh, recently, I think in the last year, is they've got something built in called Firefox Containers now, which is kind of like private browsing in a sense, but it's more yeah. like containerized where I can give personalities, like I can have a work, you know, it's like, like you said, it was like having different browsers for it, but you actually just kind of do that all within one browser. You can say, this is, these are work tabs, these are personal tabs, these are financial tabs, or, and you can create your own. Uh, and it just kind of yeah. compartmentalizes uh, that data, which is really kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah, we do like that. All right. So moving on. So the software that we all install on our computers, and maybe especially the apps that we install on our smartphones, have the potential to access vast troves of deeply personal information. In recent years, operating system vendors like Apple, Google, and Microsoft uh, have started putting up some more roadblocks you know, in the form of app permissions. But first of all, how, how do we evaluate a given app's privacy risks before we install it? And I'm not just talking smartphone apps, but I'm talking software you might install on your computer as well. Uh, and second, how do we best use these kind of newer operating system level controls you know, to minimize the risks if we do end up installing it? Yeah, th- this one's tough. And you know, the way I think about the levels of protection, they're sort of the things you control yourself, the settings you make and the decisions you make. There's the companies you associate with, which might be buying a device or installing an app or, or doing business with a company. And then the third layer is sort of the governmental layers that are you being protected by the you know, system beyond you. Um, so you're kind of now getting from the personal layer into the middle layer. Mm. And there you have to really be a, a wise or you know, studied consumer and, and make sure you're not doing business with somebody that 
everyone else has already figured out is doing you know doing <laughs> yeah, bad things right because you don't you don't really have a ton of control once right you know you put an app on your phone and you start using it. I mean you, you do have that first level control and we obviously put a lot of effort in helping you change the settings you can change but you and your listeners are mostly aware there's APIs in these apps that can be doing things with data that you know they didn't disclose or that you didn't right. You right. control through through settings so that that really becomes very tough uh, the increased pressure Apple and to some degree Google and Microsoft are putting in their ecosystems to stop people from doing the really heavy hardcore malicious stuff is is helpful and that comes from consumer pressure but there's not very much visibility into it um, you know that we can have so what do you think about you know Apple has they've added these new with their kind of labeling nutrition labels for privacy where they're actually Apple's tried to standardize this this way of kind of quickly at a glance seeing what at least their smartphone apps and I don't know if they've done this for the regular App Store yet or not um, for the for the Mac but you know there kind of a quick glance you know what data is collected about you and, and how it's used first of all do you do you like that second how do you <laughs> still how do you trust it like either that Apple is policing it properly or that these people are, as far as I know, a lot of this is just done on the honor system. Yeah, it's completely the honor system. You know, having an app in the app store and answering the questions and, and reading a little bit about it. Like it's a, I think it's a great first step. It's by no means perfect in five or 10 different ways, but as evidenced by, you know, Google's reluctance, you know, it was kind of a bit of an industry you know, joke to watch Google fail <laughs> right. to update their apps for two months because they didn't want to have to write down what they were doing and, and mm-hmm. Facebook the same. You can shave an edge off what you report, but if it's obvious you're doing something and you say you're not, users are going to call it out. So I think it's the beginning of the right framework. And I don't think at an individual level, many users are going to look at them and you might make decisions if there's something way out of whack that you didn't know. But it forces, look, anytime you force something to be written down and looked at, as a developer, I can tell you filling out that form, now it's a privacy app, you know, maybe especially, you, you have to sort of wrestle with, okay, what, what are we doing? Why? So it's going to force questions back in the product development cycle. Yeah. I, I guarantee it's doing that, you know, even at Google and Facebook. And it does make consumers somewhat aware. So I, I think second, third, fourth generations of these things will get better. I think Apple will, first of all, they'll institute, they'll force other ecosystems to do it. And I think someone, maybe Google has announced something for Android that's similar. And they will over time automate, you know, the parts they can automate. And then what will happen, and I think this is starting to happen, is third parties will start taking that data and aggregate it and analyze it and mm, add more yeah. value to it. Yeah. We've played with some things to try to turn it to, to both compare uh, different apps to them, you know, to each other. So, okay, you need a, a private messaging app. What do they say about themselves? Well, that becomes useful because there's many of those right. and they're very different. So I'm, I'm all for it. I, I think it's, you know, back to that 25-year or 10-year, whatever it is, road to privacy here. I think it's a good step and I, I'm really glad that Apple did it. Me, me too. I mean, I, I personally think transparency is the first step in a lot of these things, just knowledge and awareness, because a lot of times it's just not – It these companies have gotten to be really good at dark patterns and obfuscation as far as what they're doing and having somebody say, okay, look, we're, we're going to set a basic standard here that everyone's going to have to answer the same questions in the same way with the same answers in the same English words that we all 
come to mean the same thing as opposed to these you know, yeah. euphemisms, right? Um, you know, that, you know, enhanced experience and all these things that they're basically means they're tracking. Uh, so I think it's yeah. great that they're doing it. And that, that you're right. It's a great point that it allows now third parties to come along and ele- and digest that data. Like thinking nutrition labels on that are on all of our products that we buy now, you know, that's allowed Weight Watchers and all these other companies to go through and comb through those. And now you have an app where you could add all that stuff up and it's just the first step. So, uh, I, yeah, I totally agree that I think it's a great first step and I'm looking forward to that being refined. Just, you know, even the n- nutrition labels, right? Even over the years, those have gotten better too, right? So same thing. Yeah, it's it's hard to do things that apply to everyone. Uh, you know, the questions, right. again, on the developer side, people don't see them. They're very generic, meaning there's valid interpretation as to what they're trying to ask you. And therefore, you, you can you have to figure out how to answer. I, I think the questions, I think it's going to get to be a very time-consuming process for developers over time as they add specifics and precision right. to those questions. But but it's it, it's all to the good. I mean, you know, the problem in this whole world is the bad five percent or one percent or whatever it is have kind of ruined everything. And now you <laughs> right. have people who, and it's really one of the things. It's I mean, I'm obviously fairly you know intense about about privacy, but I do think the privacy community tends to you know uh, scream bloody murder when something is theoretically possible. Mm-hmm. In other words, yeah. in other words, it, it, something that doesn't generally create a lot of risk, but it could, we, you know, they, they, as their sort of their role, worry about the worst case scenario. Right. But that means it, everything can't be a 10 alarm fire. Right. And if everything's right. a 10 alarm fire, then users <laughs> saying, well, look, I gotta, I, I gotta pick something. I gotta do something. I can't not do this. Right. So uh, I, I think if this helps us get gradations where, okay, this is a level 10 problem, this is a level five problem, this is a level one problem or risk is very better word than problem that, that that'll help. So, um, I think we'll continue to see good things come out of that. Yeah, and that is an excellent point. And you can't let the you know the uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good, uh, as they say. It, you know, a lot of point. You know, some people, the purists, will say, "Well, just you know, basically get off the grid." And, and that you can't do that today. I mean, you can't participate in in your own democracy if you're you know if you're off the grid today. You've got to you know you're going to have a smartphone. So how do you? Yeah, how do you mitigate the risks uh, where you can and still participate? <laughs> so, well. The thing that makes me think of, which is really central to this whole privacy issue, is that right, the old enterprise security world, right? There's threat mm-hmm. models and, and there's people generally realize that not everyone has the same risk factors. Right. Mm-hmm. And the way we think about it, they also don't have the same preferences. So there isn't a generic privacy goal mm-hmm. for everyone. Everything's mm-hmm. gotta be personalized. And what someone the average person has to do versus a you know, someone who's got a lot of resources or access or control or data versus someone who's, you know, sort of mega wealthy or has, you know, maybe an individual personal target. Those are, those are three at minimum, very distinct risk factors and, and situations. And therefore, everything that's recommended has to be applied to yep. each of those. Because so the problem is that many of the things that really are no risk to an average person get <laughs> screamed about as if yes. they were all, you know, the billionaire right. CEO of whatever company and then they're scared of right then they give up because if like you say i can't i can't quit so it'd be nice to figure out some broader levels or groupings to put these in and say if you're an x this is okay but if you're a y you better not do that we try to do that in priv but it's yeah, it it's almost like problem. the cve scores i mean the cve scores taken and that's a more of a security thing but and that's getting a little technical here but those they they, they have like gradations for different things like that you score things on maybe we maybe eventually we need something like that for privacy as well 
Okay, so two apps in particular I've got to ask you about, um, and because I get asked this all the time, and I, <laughs> so yep. I and I know you must too. So I want I want to hear what you tell people because maybe I can use that. So people ask me about antivirus software and VPN services all the time. Like those those are like the go to things. Like when people hear a little bit about security or privacy, like those are the tools that people say this is what you've got to have. And then okay, well if I got to have them, which ones do I have? And then do I really need to use them? So. I often tell them though that, that because the idea you almost have to treat these things like you're you're hiring a bodyguard. I mean, these people for these tools, these kinds of tools to do their job, they have to have privileged access. They need to know everything you're doing uh, and get all up in your business, and so therefore you better trust them. And I, they have been shown in the past to have both privacy and security risks. And sometimes I think the the cure is worse than disease. So I'm really curious to get your take on that particular question. When somebody asks you, "Hey, what antivirus software should I use?" and or "What VPN server should I use?" What do you tell them? Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree. You are putting your trust in one place more than people realize. It, it's also interesting to me the way you phrased that question, because probably if it was asked a different way, I wouldn't put either of those in the top mm. five or the top 10. So it's almost like the, the broadest distributed information is five or 10 years old, right? sure. which is not, un, it's not uncommon. The virus protection stuff in my view has been absorbed by the operating system developers sufficiently that I wouldn't, I haven't personally used one in way more than a decade. You know, I was certainly into all those things 20 years ago, but I think Mac and even Windows handle that. I, I'm not an Android person, so I can't really speak you know, to that world. So we don't, I don't think, speak of or, or recommend anything in the antivirus world. I think mm. that's kind of past tense. VPNs is incredibly complicated. And I think it's a perfect example of what we talked about before about levels of user. For the average person, what a VPN did was make sure that your ISP and any malicious hotspots you might accidentally connect to aren't mm. listening to everything you do. I think Apple's private relay now for free handles that. And for many people, that mm. that's all they'll, they'll need. If you actually you know communicate data, and also, as you know, HTTPS, 95% of the websites you're on are encrypted anyway. So other right. than the Which metadata... Which isn't recent, yeah. So other than the metadata of where you went, it's not right. as much of a risk as it used to be. Again, if you're not on, you know, a hotspot at a motel that you don't necessarily, you know, trust. When you get into picking the VPNs, it's probably obviously a longer conversation we want to have here because, you know, they they do have the, the exact problem you just talked about. And I know, you know, someone recently rolled up five or ten of the better known yep. names and they're owned by a guy that was probably mm-hmm. a marketing spammer before. So that's, you know, not... Not a good thing. I I think Apple stepped in just the right time, you know, with private relay. If you're a person that needs a VPN, and, and I don't generally, you know, many people mm-hmm. use VPNs to location shift. And that may be right. a VPN function. I don't think it's a VPN benefit. That's that's just right. a yeah. trick, a feature that they happen to do. You know, but if you're in that third class and you're a targeted individual who someone might be, you know, a professional level group may be snooping on, you know, you better hire the right person or do the right research because you have a right. very different question about a VPN than the average person does. We we do recommend probably five or six different VPNs that I think for an average person are safe. They're not owned by companies that have I don't know that anybody's been proven to do anything, but have right. you know suspicious traits or curious <laughs> uh, you know questionable uh, business practices. So there there's still six or eight that you know the magazines that do the in depth reviews and and users like yourself that have looked at say are fine and you know we recommend those. But um, most we, we're a little bit Apple centric still. Um, Apple private relay I think is going to generally put that away. 
Okay, so a very popular thing in the recent years, especially around I think Christmas time, uh, when people start thinking about fun gifts to some to, to give to people, is to give something that's quote unquote smart. And so you know, you know, everyone wants to sell us a smart version of something that was heretofore dumb. You know, these devices that you know just by connecting them to the internet, they somehow get better, like thermostats, refrigerators, smoke alarms, TVs, speakers, doorbells, coffee makers, toasters, you name it. All these things are you know it's got to be better if you somehow put it on the internet. But uh, they've got obviously got problems too. So what are the what are the primary security and privacy risks for these what we call IoT or Internet of Things devices? Uh, and what recommendations do you have to share for maybe dealing with some of those problems? Yeah, well, I think this goes back to the uh, the beginning of the problem comes to what we talked about the, at the start of this discussion, which is you know the manufacturers of the devices. Their first impulse is generally to add something that is a cool, interesting, or useful feature. Most of them are not built to collect or leak or you know, data or, mm-hmm. or create risk. They do that because they're often not so thoughtful about the way they do it. Right. But you know, the, so other than the smart euphemism winning the marketing war, <laughs> um, I think I think there is there's cool features we all want, right? I mean, I'm uh, hue lights or something that I mm. use and 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 you know really like, and you know, smart speakers and other things. Yep. So, a the bigger brands. You know, generally because of in-house, they have the dollars and the people to worry about the core, sort of core security right. that you need. Um, and two, they have the, f- the user bases uh, who include people who call them out when they're right. doing bad or stupid things right. uh, is probably, you know, the, the safest way to go. Also, the bigger ones tend to have options, you know, settings mm-hmm. that let you turn off this, change that. Like the difference between routers, right, that don't even let you change your password in the old <laughs> days or something like that. Right. Then you get to this sort of middleware layer where you can either be a purist and say, look, I will not have an Amazon Echo in my home because you know, it conceptually creates the risk of, uh, uh, you know, of listening mm. or Amazon's behavior in other areas yeah. has not been, you know, exemplary. Yeah. You know, that, that war, I don't think we're winning, right? And the, the numbers of Echo devices and Alexa devices suggest, you know, that's not <laughs> happening. Right. Um, but the pressure has caused them to, you know, you can now say to Echo, you know, erase my historical data. Right. You can change settings uh, to make them not save that data, which is a lot of the risk for an average person. Again, if I'm being targeted, if I'm a government official or, you know, a newspaper reporter of a certain kind, I'm going to not have that device in my home because now I'm subject to a kind of risk that right. Right, the right. average person isn't. The average person just, you know, buy from the bigger companies, investigate the settings and use them. Uh, Amazon's another one that we put in our uh, our new automation feature. So you can push a button and we'll change all the echo settings so they're the safe mode. Most people don't know about those settings. They don't take the time to look for them. Mm-hmm. And therefore, again, they, they got the benefit of the Alexa device, but they volunteered for this risk because they didn't opt out. Now, you know, should people have to opt out versus have to opt in? That's a different discussion. So like everything else at the end of the day, I think it's it's being a little thoughtful in your purchases. Are, are you doing business with a company that you want to? And I wouldn't buy a thermostat or a you know doorbell from a no-name company. Amazon's actually an interesting case study there, right? Mm-hmm. So Ring and and that world is is done some very harmful, damaging things intentionally. Mm-hmm. But if I Absolutely had to have one. I don't know that I'd buy theirs, but I'm saying versus a, a no-name brand on Amazon where I don't know what's in the firmware. I don't know what's going to come up. I don't know what it's connecting to. Right. I'd rather have the one that thousands of people are looking at. So pick a good company. Make sure the settings are you know optimized for your actual protection. And there are some use case controls that you can put in place as well that we talk about. 
All right. So last question. This might be the hardest one, honestly. And I don't know that you have, if you've got, I can't imagine actually how your app even could address this, but I'm just curious because it's because it's, it's gotten so bad. And that is tracking our movement, our behaviors has really made a dramatic shift to the real world, like in real life, things like facial recognition in stores or uh, in parking lots, or honestly, all over the place, cameras are everywhere and facial recognition is getting added to a lot of them. Wireless tracking, we, we carry our phones with us that have multiple wireless things in them that are broadcasting all sorts of weird IDs without us doing anything. It's just kind of naturally how they work. And that allows us to be tracked by those devices. So in the real world, in public spaces, uh, you know, our devices are kind of giving us away and our faces and, and whatever. So do you, do you happen to have any tips for how we might protect our privacy when we're out in the real physical world? Well, most of those things, unfortunately, as you your question implies, you don't have a lot of control over. You know, the two that I think about the most uh, that most people don't think about much are license plate readers yeah. and easy pass. You know, <laughs> right. I, I heard somewhere, and I don't know if I have the, the if I can source this, but that a, a an easy pass is read, you know, 50 or 60 times between the Lincoln Tunnel and Times Square, which is, you know, a mile. Um, meaning <laughs> wow. you think once you went through the toll booth, it's done. Mm. But other people have listening devices that are tracking that location. There's companies that pay other firms to drive through parking lots collecting the license plate of everybody who's parked. Because yeah. if I know you parked outside of Saxth Avenue versus parked outside of, you know, the dollar store, right, I'd know something else about you. Right. Yep. And facial recognition, these these are very hard systemic issues. These to me are in that third ring of the government or, or local laws are going to have to work with. And that's, you know, that's A, not easy and B, has as much bad consequence and unintended harm as, as good that they might cause. I think the tracking, the location tracking element that was in your list there is the one most people can do the most about. You can limit which apps have location access. I turn off location uh, tracking overall on my phone uh, a huge amount of the time. Uh, means when I want the map, I have to go turn it on. But I'm generally shocked how many days I went without it. Hmm. Now, I don't think, you know, in my case that Again, the individual risk of anyone knowing where I am is significant, but I just don't like the idea that those lists are being built oh, yeah. up and there's, yeah. you know, so, you know, broadly, you're right. You can't do very much. I think you can, again, set settings and think about it a little bit. The, the one exception I would make and the one case I think people should, you know, take specific actions is participating in protests, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we we're maybe a little bit of past you know, protest season, but we have, we have said a year or two of a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. And at least you know, I'm in New York city. And the first thing you see when there's a, a protest is the helicopters <laughs> hover. And, you know, I can't, uh, I'm not saying I can prove this or prove source, but you know, it's been said that they're scooping up uh, device IDs of phones yeah. from below. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, turning off the phone, leaving it at home, getting a burner, you know, if your point is you're putting yourself in a situation of risk, then, you know, you want to take action. And it, it actually brings to mind the other one that's been in the news a lot lately, which is Google uh, complying with yep. subpoenas relative to January 6th yep. Yep. for location data. And, you know, on one hand, right, all these things are double edged, right? If someone <laughs> did something wrong and that catches them, that's fine. But what I worry about in terms of location data is... You know, if you're on the street where a crime is committed, but you wasn't you, mm-hmm. I would rather my phone data wasn't in the Google database to get handed to the police later. Right. Yeah. So, 
you know, these are complex problems and we probably can't be specific about solutions here, but being aware that you are sharing that data and that, it, you know, turning off wholesale location access on your phone. Now, your, your internet service provider, your, your mobile provider will still have it. Yeah. But we're hearing, we hear more about Google, you know, being subpoenaed for that data than, you know, than Verizon and AT&T. They may be subpoenaed equally, in which case, you know, we have a bigger problem, but, um, <laughs> Yeah. Some of this is awareness and some of that awareness builds to public pressure and that public pressure at some point builds to different laws and, and regulations of who can request what when. It's a, if nothing else, the requests now are you know too liberal and fulfilled too often. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap this up a little bit with maybe on a positive note. So and, and I get this a lot when I teach the class and, I, and, and on this on the book and things like that, where people just feel overwhelmed. Like you, you just we went through this litany of things that are that are bad, things that are that you've got to take care of, things you've got to do, and it becomes overwhelming. And even though it's theoretically possible for all of us to do these things, it just seems logistically infeasible. But that's where companies like you come in. So this is where I want you to tell us a little bit about Priv and how, you know, given all the things that we've just ran, we just walked through, and people are thinking, oh my god, how am I gonna, how am I possibly gonna do all these things? This is where you know, your company comes in. So tell us about, tell us about Priv and what and how it might be able to help. And you've kind of mentioned it along the way, but tell us a little more detail about what, what your app can do to help people address this litany of things we just talked about. Yeah. Well, the litany is, is why we started the company and the fact that, you know, even a couple of years later, it still sounds so overwhelming is, is why it's a hard problem. What we do basically is try to help people in one place in a single app figure out what they need to do. The whole thing's personalized. We talked about before, we, we in a simplistic way, let you choose, do I want good, better, best privacy? Let's be simple about it. And do I care about, I mean, more worried about financial risk than marketing risk, than embarrassment, than you know location and harassment, those kind of things. So once we get that data of your priorities and preferences, and you tell us you're a Mac user versus a Windows user. You have Facebook. You have Amazon. It, it, you know, we ask a few questions to see where you're going to need to protect yourself. Then we basically present a series of checklists of these are the things you should do to protect yourself. And uh, those have historically been just sort of recommendations. You know, turn this slide, turn this setting off, you know, enable this feature. We spent most of this year building automation and we're now rolling out automation, meaning you click one button in Priv, the app or website for the company we're talking about opens. We navigate to the setting, change it and go back. So we can change, you know, on, on the website right now, we can change 60 some settings in three minutes. So you <laughs> get a whole ton of private, a ton of inconvenience solved for you very quickly. So one core of it is these privacy checklists that prioritize what to do, although you get a lot of flexibility. You can go, you know, sort of start to finish. We have a default path, which is this is what we would do first, this is what we do second, this is what we do third, and you can work on that over time. But we also let you say, you know what, I just want to lock down my finances first. And you sort of click on the finances tracking area, and we say these are the things that have the most impact on locking down your finance, or I'm most worried about harassment or, you know, personal harm. I want to lock those things down. So that's a big part of it. We also include a lot of the a lot of the risk these days or some of the issue people need to worry about is external data, like you talked about before, that's already out there. Mm. So which data breaches have I been in? Which data brokers have my information? Uh, we have an identity theft protection package in there with which will both scan for risks as well as uh, there's a million dollar you know policy if you do have a harm and 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 white glove service to help you recover your identity if you have 
if you have a remediation effort needed. So basically, we've just tried to bring together, take this conversation and just like your book does and said, okay, here's it laid out in order and here's how to do it. And then it's all wrapped in this scoring system. So we've created sort of a credit score for privacy where we plot. The, only, the difference between us and a credit score is everyone has the same theoretical credit score perfection. Um, but we realized because of threat models and because of preferences, everyone has a different privacy goal. Mm. So we set a privacy goal on our little numeric scale for you. We tell you where you are. And as you complete the steps that PRIV recommends, your score goes up. Now, you might set a low goal and say, I want good privacy and then sort of get hooked on the idea and then set the change the goal to better privacy and we'll move up over time. But um, as I said before, that helps people to have context to where they're standing and see the benefit for, you know, for their actions. So we're, we're trying to aggregate it so it's not overwhelming. It's a big field. There's a lot of things, but it's presented in a sequential way. You can come and go as you please. It's updated as new things happen, settings change, new risks come up. We cover right now, I think almost 50 apps and devices, you know, hardware, software, IoT devices and so forth. But we're still adding to that over time. Uh, and we've been adding these services like the uh, broker scan. We now have broke data broker removal. So mm. most people know if you search your name on the internet, someone's selling your address and every address you ever lived at and your sister's <laughs> name and your company. You can push a button and have those removed, which you could do by yourself, but it would take hundreds of hours. We can do most of them happen the same day and over the next week or two, get rid of all of them. So it's trying to be a one-stop shop, which is a hard hard goal. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I was very impressed by the amount of things you, you covered already. So real quick, what devices is this supported on and what do you uh, what do you get for free versus the, the for pay version? Yeah, so Priv as an app is an iOS app uh, only today. It does run on iPad and uh, the M1 Mac. So you can run it on a Mac if you have an M1 chip, which is increasing number. Mm -hmm. And on the web today, we only have the settings automation, which is a sliver of the Priv app. So, but if at Priv.app, anyone can go and for free, while it's in kind of a beta period, use the settings automation and change Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, and Amazon, I think are the four that are up there okay. today. In terms of the app itself, as you said, there's a free mode where you get five email data breach uh, reporting, both today and it'll monitor in the future and, and alert you if you ever have a new data breach in any of those five email addresses. You can see which data brokers have what data on you, but you have to pay to push to use our one button removal. And then on the privacy checklists, there's all of the sort of beginner you know, minimum requirements everyone should do. Checklists are free. And then kind of a selection of other apps are free. But when you pay, you unlock all the checklists for everything. You unlock the data broker removal. You unlock the identity theft package, which includes both the scans to alert you of identity theft activity, as well as the million dollar policy for protection in case of loss. And yeah, I think that's, that's it today. So you unlock all the scans and all the data if you get the paid version. And most of those things, you know, that's nine bucks a month. Most of those things sell for a couple hundred dollars a year. So it's uh, priced pretty attractively. So I got to ask the, this question because if, if nothing else, we've, I should have made my listeners paranoid enough to think this already. Uh, so I've got to ask the question again, devil's advocate. Why should I trust your app? How do I, how do I know that 
your app is for for example, you said it's going to log into Facebook. Do I do I give you my Facebook credentials? I mean, I know you don't, but but they yeah. th- explain that to the audience why we should trust your app, why we should you know what information you have to collect and and know about us to do the things that you do on on our behalf. No, sure. Glad you asked. So the app itself, uh, I'll separate the app from the automations because there there's a distinction there. The app itself actually touches or collects very little information. So you're going to answer some questions, as I said, about your privacy goals and your environment, you know, that you have a iPhone and, and an Apple Watch and you have a Facebook and a LinkedIn, a LinkedIn account and a, a HomePod and whatever else you have. And then the app is going to know that you've checked off certain settings. I, I turned this off. I turned that on. I did this. It gains access to no accounts. It knows nothing about, I mean, we're an iPhone app, so we do. Uh, you log in with uh, an email address. We do get IP back, you know, through Apple. We do support Apple private login, so you can even give us a kind of a burner email address in that sense. But we're really not getting any information. We're not touching any of your accounts through the main app. We're simply we're building checklists for you and tracking what you checked off. Okay, so the app is really I don't think putting anyone um, at any risk. I mean, there's there's some kind of profile there of you that you have these three apps and have done these three things, but there's nothing I would, I think anyone would consider sensitive information. And by tracking, just real quick, by tracking, you mean that this is all on our system. This is you saying, okay, I've done this. This is not, the app doesn't magically know that you've gone to Facebook somehow. It You've told it, here's here's what I think you should do. And you just, you're checking a box, right? Yeah. In the, in the base app, uh, the checklists, you check things off. You know, as I've said about this over time, if you want to lie to Weight Watchers and say you didn't have a piece of cake... <laughs> You can lie to Weight Watchers. I think right. you know, it's, this is self-protection. We're telling you what to do. You're keeping track of what you've done. Okay. Now, let, let me complicate factors with our <laughs> new automations. Yeah. That, that, that's all great, and it's certainly safe. The problem is it is a lot of work to log into Facebook, find this setting, change it, mark it down, and it takes time and energy and all that. So what we've done over this year is built these automations, and we've built the ability to log into Facebook, log into Google, log into LinkedIn, log into Amazon and so forth, find the setting, change it, and then report back to the app and we'll throw the check switch for you. Hmm. Let me tell you how we do that. We open, a, it's a Safari extension. I mean, there's a on the desktop, there's a Chrome extension, there's an Edge extension, there's a Firefox extension, although that was submitted 10 weeks ago and I'm not sure it was approved yet. Hmm. So on the desktop, we run in everything but Safari. Hmm. We'll get there. We're not there yet. And on the iPhone, we're just about to ship. The, the Safari extension is out in the App Store today. We're about to upgrade it dramatically next week. So okay. depending on when this airs, it'll probably already be out. What those – they're scripts that navigate the websites and change the settings. What we do not do is ever get access to any login credentials or tokens. So hmm. what happens is you push a button in Priv and say – Change these five settings on Facebook. We recommend some settings. You say, yes, I want to change them. You say, go. We'll open up a browser, desktop or mobile. If that browser was already logged into to Facebook, in that example, it'll go to Facebook, navigate, make the changes, report back to us, and you now you're back in the app. So we never saw the login, had the ability to grab mm-hmm. the login, or hold any cookie. That means we don't have the ability to check once a month and make sure it's okay, which we would mm. honestly like to provide. But we did not want to hold any tokens or access any login credentials. Mm-hmm. 
So in in nutshell, that's how it works. There's a FAQ on our site about the security issues of this. But uh, even in that situation, all we really gain is the knowledge of what your current settings are for the settings we changed. We do, by the way, keep track of where they were before we changed them. Hmm. So in the app, there's going to be an undo feature because I know sometimes people change settings and then the next day don't know why things are the way they are. <laughs> right, and right. so we, we didn't want to hear about it. So we wanted to give you a way to back up. But um, again, in the scope of the kind of information that using the internet, you know, and, and we've talked about in this uh, time frame, we are never holding much information. The information we do hold, I will say in the app is encrypted and the key information like the data broker information and the data breach information is encrypted with a key that your app holds so we can't even get to it when you're not logged in. Mm. So without going too far on the technical side, I know uh, you and I and uh, our CTO had had a conversation. We have you know tried to use proper protocols to protect the data that we do have. All right, great. Uh, last question before we go, and that is, just generally speaking, I'll kind of throw you an open one here, uh, softball. <laughs> what other tools and services might you recommend to people? When uh, obviously you recommend your own, but what you know, yeah. when people ask you for you know websites or books or I don't know, what are, what are some kind of your go to recommendations for people when it talks when the when they want to learn more or, or, or improve their privacy and security. Well, there's two worlds there, right? So in terms of tools, and we didn't, we didn't talk about it, although we covered a, a ton of ground today, there, there are a lot of other tools necessary, right? Authenticator apps. We mentioned VPNs. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we talked about privacy browsers and private search engines. Also in Priv, we track 12 or 13 categories of third party privacy tools. Mm-hmm. And we recommend, we include those we recommend. Most of them, there's a hundred, you know, there's a hundred password managers and there's a hundred you know, authenticator apps. We've looked at the ones we've looked at. I can't say we looked at every one, but we've included three or five or two or whatever we like in each category. 99% of those we have no business relationship with. We're just saying you you need these also to be mm-hmm. safe. Yeah. And and part of what Priv does is when you sign, when you set that uh, target of good, better, best privacy, we associate categories of tools that we think you should have. So if you say good, we say you, you're going to want to pick a private search engine and when you tell us which one you have that affects your score and you'll get tips for how to use that search engine better. And we might tell you to use a tracking blocker. If you say you want better or best privacy, we now up that number from three mm-hmm. tools to five tools to seven tools. So our tool recommendations are, are built into Priv. Okay. Other than that, you know, obviously I, you know, we've just met, but I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time <laughs> and I've just started, I've just started in your book. I think that's a great place to start. You know, some of the, as you know, and we, we did briefly talk about this, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Wired Magazine, there's a lot of people now on the beat who are doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in privacy Twitter and, and everywhere else, people can get a lot of information. It's overwhelming. A lot of times they cover issues, but they're reticent to make specific recommendations for what to do. Mm. I think because A, they don't want to, you know, they realize people have different personal needs right. and, and situations and they, they don't have enough space to delineate all that. But it's it's easier and easier to be aware of what's going on out there. And, uh, you know, I think that's evident in the fact that, uh, you know, I just came through an airport and saw DuckDuckGo <laughs> ads 50 feet tall on every wall. Oh, wow. Um, you know, privacy has entered the, uh, the, the social consciousness now and people are, the average person is trying to figure out how to do something. And, uh, you know, we're trying to help. Obviously, you've been helping for a long time. 
Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for all those recommendations. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, Craig. Sure, Kerry. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, thanks again to Craig for coming on the show and sharing uh, his great tips and great insights on privacy and even security today. Uh, because they really do go hand in hand. And a lot of people, I think, <laughs> write off write off privacy because they don't think they're interesting. But unfortunately, that information, the same information that you you know think is not that useful could be really useful against, against you. And I really like the way that you kind of ticked off those kind of four areas of harm. And I think that really drives the point home. There are lots of ways in which you leaking data can bite you in the butt. And so, so you know, it is important. And uh, I think it's great that uh, we were able to kind of break those down and, and give you several reasons why you might want to do this. And Priv is a great way to do it. I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed talking with Craig both offline and on in the interview because I think we're really kind of kindred spirits. I mean, we see that there's all these things out there to be done and uh, we just want to help people get them done because it would really help all of us. And one thing I guess we didn't really touch on in the interview today, but there really is kind of a herd immunity thing here. There's the more of us that do these things, the better off we will all be because it just makes it that much harder for, you know, viruses and scams and disinformation and some of these things to spread when some of us are quote unquote inoculated. And I, I know that, Unfortunately, here in the U.S., that terms like vaccinations and inoculations and things are now politically tinged, but they really shouldn't be. From a purely scientific standpoint, uh, we really can help all of each other out by helping uh, just our neighbors kind of get up and running on these things and get, get their own houses in order. And it really does help all of us. So real quick, uh, I did manage to confirm here at the last minute before I finished up recording for the week. Uh, I talked with Craig, and he said they are going to be giving away some of their checklists for free next week that normally would fall under the subscription. Again, a lot of the basic stuff is free. You just download the app. The app itself is free, and you could do a lot of things, a lot of the basic checklists you know, that everyone kind of needs to do uh, without having to pay anything. But there are some checklists that come with the subscription. Among other things, there's a lot of reasons you might want to get a subscription. Uh, but a lot of those checklists will be free next week, uh, kind of for Thanksgiving. So I think he told me between Wednesday and Monday next week. So uh, if you want to give it a shot, that would be a great time to try it out. And again, uh, if you're going to be hanging out with friends and family, you know, show them about it too. And maybe help them get through those checklists as well while you're, while you're there. And if, if you want to do it quickly, check out some of those automations he was talking about. So anyway, great stuff. Uh, really appreciate Craig coming on the show. Uh, I want to circle back to a couple things he mentioned. Uh, he did talk about privacy.com, and that is something uh, I've been kind of wanting to talk about on the show for a while, and I probably should have mentioned it maybe in uh, last week with the Best and Worst Gift Guide, because that's a really, really interesting service. And honestly, I don't know why credit cards companies have not just blindly copied all of these features, but it really puts a nice kind of virtual layer between you and, you know, merchants, you know, when you're trying to, it's anybody that wants your credit card number and it lets you kind of obfuscate yourself, you know, give yourself some extra privacy and certainly some extra security because you're not really giving away your real financial account information. You're giving out a kind of a dummy credit card number. That's like a virtual credit card number. I've talked about those in this show before, and some credit card companies do offer those. But this privacy.com has all sorts of ways that you can tweak these numbers. So basically for each retailer, you know, and a kind of a one-off thing, you could you could customize for each one of them how much you want them to be able to charge, how often, 
you know, maybe it's a one-time deal, maybe it's a certain amount a month or all sorts of different ways you can kind of slice and dice that. And I need to look at it too. The problem that I've had with it and the reason I haven't talked about it is because it's tied directly to a bank account. So it kind of works more like a debit card or uh, an ACH transfer or something. I mean, it's, it's a direct pull. And as I will probably, I think, talk about next week, that could be a dangerous relationship. I mean, if somebody, if that gets compromised, then your money can be taken directly out of your financial institution, your bank account, and it's gone. You have to get now get it back. And there are some rules that will, you know, let you contest those things and get some money back even you know, temporarily while you figure things out. But it's a lot harder to get your money back than to just never have to give it up at all, which is why I always recommend using credit cards online instead of debit cards. Um, because with a credit card, you, you probably never have to pay that bill. You just contest it and you'll even well before your, the bill comes due, uh, which is a much better position to be in. And in fact, like I said, and I kind of alluded to next week, I'm going to talk about a credit card situation or a debit card situation I got into next week that was no fault of my own, uh, nevertheless had financial consequences. But what I was thinking, and I actually talked with Craig about this offline, and one way I might approach this, and I might give this a shot, is to create a dedicated bank account for that. Like, just create a whole separate account where all I keep in there is enough money to cover these kind of Netflix or you know, some of these kind of known bills maybe that I want to charge this way. And just enough to cover those. And don't tie it to any other account. Don't set up, you know, overdraft protection or anything because you don't want, if something goes wrong, you don't want someone to be able to run that one to zero and then all of a sudden be able to siphon money from other accounts as well. Uh, so I may give it a shot and try it that way. But I mean, think about, and maybe this is not the best example, but like gym memberships or some of these other subscriptions where if you want to cut them off, it's a lot easier to do if they're not tied directly to a real credit card, right? If you if they have a credit card that's kind of virtual and dedicated just for them, then you can cut off that one card whenever you want. And I can guarantee you, Jim's not going to keep your membership around too long if you stop paying for it. So anyway, you might want to check it out. I'm certainly going to, I think, give it a look. If I Assuming I can set it up the way I want to, where it's only tied to like a, a one account that's not tied to anything else, I might give that a shot. Uh, one real other quick thing I want to circle back on. He talked about the Google Plus trick for creating dummy email addresses. That does work. I've used it in the past. So basically, if you've got an email address like joeschmo at gmail.com, then you can give out joeschmo plus blah, uh, whatever you want. And by literally like the addition sign, the the plus sign and anything after that plus sign will basically be ignored by Google. And it will just act as if you'd sent that to Joe Schmo at, you know, gmail.com. But, you know, it's got some obvious limitations, right? Any human looking at that will immediately see, oh, well, okay. The real address there is Joe Schmo at gmail.com. Uh, and some websites actually block that. They either don't think that the plus sign is a valid part of a email address, which turns out it, it is, or they just don't want you to give it a dummy address. So they, they don't let you do it. You know, but for me, the real way to set that up is to buy yourself a web domain. And for 15 bucks a year, you have a basically infinite number of email addresses you can give out. And, you know, if I own mycooldomain.com, then I can give out blah at mycooldomain.com. I can give out Macy's at mycooldomain.com. I can give out Amazon at mycooldomain.com and they'll all come to my account, but I could also filter and put in different folders or block any of those email addresses at any time if I wanted to as well. All right. So that's going to wrap it up this week. I did add some uh, little bonus content. I talked to Craig a little bit more about the app and get, get into a little bit more details about what it does. That will be showing up shortly for uh, my patrons as bonus content. I will have a news show for you next week. And I've got several interviews in the hopper uh, on the way. So and again, for this week, for those that celebrated, have a very happy Thanksgiving. Help your friends and family you know, to uh 
to beef up their security and privacy. Maybe just have some fun chats about <laughs> fun chats about privacy and security. You know, work that into the conversation. It would be a great time uh, maybe to mention the book, the podcast, the, the blog to other people. Word of mouth is really important. Uh, it really does mean a lot, and it's very effective. And one more thing real quick. I can't believe I almost forgot to say this, but uh, my book is on sale right now. Uh, you have to go to Springerlink to get it, which Springer, I think, is the company that owns A-Press. Um, but if you go to Springerlink, and there's a link in the show notes, uh, you can get the book for $9.99 or $6.99. Uh, that's the hard copy or the, the soft cover book for $9.99 and the uh, ebook for $6.99. And depending on where you're from, it's either dollars, pounds, or euro. So that, that's a great price on the book. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking to give, uh, you know, get a stocking stuffer, that'd be a great, <laughs> great idea. You know, maybe you're giving away some really cool IoT or electronic device or service, and this would be a great way to accompany that. So, of course, you can check the show notes for this link, or if you just go to link.springer.com, that's S-P-R-I-N-G-E-R.com, and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, you'll find it there. Actually, there's a lot of books on sale, so I don't think there's a limit either, so you can, you can get a bunch. So anyway, check that out and perhaps maybe get some stocking stuffers. So until next week, have a happy holidays, everybody. Go get those booster shots. Help people get theirs as well. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>